Welcome to Next in Nonprofits. I'm Steve Boland, and I am very excited to be joined today by Sarah Durham, the CEO at Big Duck in New York. Sarah, thanks so much for taking the time. Hey, Steve. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to be with you. Uh, I asked you for a little bit of your time to talk about your latest book, and we'll get into that in just a moment. But for people that have not had the privilege of following Big Duck's work for years, as I have, can you talk a little bit more about what is Big Duck? What do you do? Sure. Big Duck is a communications firm that works exclusively with nonprofits. Our mission is really helping nonprofits use communications to advance their missions. And we, uh, we've been around for 25 years. I started the business in 1994. And we work with mostly mid-size and larger nonprofits on um, branding and communications campaigns and building their communications team's capacity. So I work in the the more medium to even sometimes smaller nonprofit space myself. And as I heard about your book uh, and had a chance to look through it, I, I was really excited about the idea of how do we talk about communications within that that framework of it's not this uh, you know add-on that we do in addition to a program thing, but really needs to be much more integrated. So you've, you've titled your latest book, The Nonprofit Communications Engine. Um, and before we get into some of the specifics in the book, um, why why write that in that format? Why that title? How, do, how did that come about? Well, you know, I was searching as I was working on this project for a metaphor that would help nonprofit leaders, mostly executive directors, think about communications a little bit differently, kind of move away from a more tactical, if I just do this one thing or we just get this one thing done, we'll be good way of thinking towards thinking of communications as more of a practice. And, and one of the metaphors that surfaced for me is that communications is really an engine. It's the kind of thing that you have to build and you have to fix pieces and you have to maintain it. So that's that's kind of the 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 idea there. And I, I love talking with you on a podcast about this, where you've chosen to write a book about this because there are so many different ways that people learn and absorb information. And uh, being able to give them something in book format is, is just a great way for some people to really dig in and absorb at their own pace and speed the right kind of messages. So available right now as we're speaking, it just came out uh, ahead of us recording just last week uh, or even more recently, uh, not even a full week yet. Yeah, it came out. Uh, it's on Amazon as of January 15th. And yeah. and then there are kind of pieces of the content that are sprinkled throughout Big Duck's website. So if you go to bigduck.com and you go to insights, you can actually download an ebook that is got a section of the book. And um, there's a self-assessment in the book that you can download and, and fill out on the Big Duck site too. Good. So with, with that kind of prologue, I, I was really intrigued by a, a number of things uh, that you've chosen to emphasize in the book that Big Duck has been doing with clients for a long time and, and trying to spread that word more broadly. But I think one of the challenges that the more uh, medium-sized nonprofit often runs into is there seems to be many more communications-oriented tasks than there are dedicated staff to deal with them. And often uh, the the response to that from an organization that's feeling a little budget squeeze on how much do they want to invest in this work is I will find one human being who is perfect at everything and they will do it all in a 40-hour week. And you talk about this in the book as the unicorn communicator. Um, can you expand on that idea just a little bit more about uh, how you see that playing out in some organizations and how they maybe kind of start backing away from that hope? 
Yeah, I mean, the unicorn communicator, as you described, is this kind of mythical creature who is going to be able to be great on social media, write and produce newsletters, um, think strategically and develop strategic communications plans, you know, create and launch campaigns, manage email marketing, and the list goes on and on and on. And um, in 25 years of working with nonprofits, one of the things we've noticed is that what organizations want from that communications person really varies from organization to organization and person to person, but it's real, it's rarely scaled to fit their, the pragmatic realities of what one actual human being can do in a full-time job or, um, or a handful. I mean, there, there is actually a great, um, every year, uh, the nonprofit marketing guide uh, produces a report that they call the communications trends study. And in the 2020 study, which just came out recently, there are some really interesting stats that link the operating budget of organizations to how many full-time employees they have in communications. And um, and in that study, you can, by the way, download that study if you just Google 2020 nonprofit communications trends report. But um, what they talk about is that in most nonprofits with operating budgets of less than 20 million, uh, it's unusual to have more than one or two people in communications. And um, and so part of what I think my agenda is, is to get organizations and particularly executive directors and midsize organizations to, to be pragmatic about what that job needs to be so that it can be scaled in a way that works for the organization, but also gives the person in that seat the opportunity to succeed. So your book goes into asking a little bit more about um, what's the strategy here? What are we trying to do? But the idea of mindshare comes up where you talk about uh, you wanting, you know, the audience that you're communicating to and audiences, and you have some graphics in the book about kind of nested audiences, but the idea of you really want a certain group of people to think of your work first when they identify an issue, a cause, a, a moment of passion, um, and how you help them feel that connection through the communications work different from necessarily just an effective program on its own. So can you, um, I think maybe leap off of that idea of mindshare as a strategy here of what we're trying to do rather than just, um, I put a communication out saying, please send money and you turn around and send money and all is good. Yeah. There are two interconnected concepts that I think are useful for nonprofits to think about when they are trying to get the word out better. I mean, there, there are so many organizations who would describe themselves as a best kept secret. And I think there are two, two ways to solve that problem. The first is you need to establish mindshare. And what mindshare means is just that when your name is said or people see your logo or they see the banner when they walk by your facility, they're familiar with you. They have some sense of who you are. And there are many, many organizations who have mindshare because they are very visible in the media or we've interacted with them in some way. Many of them are big national brands like Make-A-Wish or the Red Cross mm -hmm. who have kind of penetrated our consciousness. But the other related concept that I think is very important, which I talk about in detail in my book, Brand Raising, and is a lot of what we do at Big Duck, is the concept of positioning. Positioning is a, is a marketing idea that's been around for a long time, which is um, being really clear and specific what the idea, the big idea you want to be known for in people's minds. So mindshare is really just have they heard of you? Or are they aware of you? And positioning is do they understand the essence of what you do? And in an ideal scenario, 
you as a leader probably want your nonprofit to have both mindshare and clear positioning. So uh, in this book, I'm really focused on the idea of how do you start to establish mindshare and how does the function of communications in your organization help you grow mindshare and that how does that mindshare then create action that helps advance the mission. And measuring some of those things outside of the, you know, did we raise money this month kind of thing. I think sometimes the communications team often gets lumped in with development. Like our purpose of telling people about all the good work we're doing is so that they will um, send a check or the foundation will make a grant or some other way of helping to pay all those necessary costs. But this idea of uh, advocacy and engagement different from whether some people may choose a financial means of support. Um, I think is important to differentiate in the what's the strategy here, what are the tactics that you're looking at. Um, when you do some audience identification and, and modeling in the book, one of the, um, the kind of categories of potential uh, audience member that you had there is a, a sort of a rabid clicktivist. I can't remember what the exact term that you used was, but n not somebody that we're maybe so likely to turn into a donor, but somebody who's going to be part of the audience and and wants to be engaged that way. And thinking of them as a part of who you're trying to reach is a pretty layered approach. It is. And you know, one of the reasons the job of the communicator is so challenging is that good communications work is about driving engagement. But as you talk about, engagement can mean a lot of different things in different organizations. For some organizations, engagement is really about driving people to support the organization financially. In other organizations, engagement is about getting people to come into programs or to become members. And yet for others, it's about activism. It's about you know signing a pledge or voting or turning up for a particular issue in a particular way. So communications as a function is often responsible for driving people towards all of those actions and really has to work very collaboratively with their peers in development or in programs or in government relations in order to make sure that the, the, the waters that we are chumming as communicators are attracting the right kind of fish and that <laughs> the people in those departments can then effectively fish for them. Because if, if the communications team does a great job getting lots and lots of people to express interest in a program, but then the programs people aren't effectively able to, you know, sign those people up and get them to, to actually do it, then we have a disconnect there too. Yeah. So I think one of the biggest challenges for the, you know, leaner communications team, whether that's, you know, a couple of paid professionals and some volunteers and a couple of board members or whatever it might be, um, is really measuring not just that uh, we got a message in front of an audience member, but as a result of that, they took that engagement step um, rather than they just took that engagement step because, you know, some other unrelated thing happened. They found us on the web because we are really well optimized for search and they were searching and they cared and they found us, which is a wonderful thing that communicators should be thinking of. But often we're trying to reach to people that haven't thought to do a search yet. Uh, they don't know that they want to be maybe thinking about that. So driving that that question of how do we know that we're actually reaching some folks that might actually do a thing, I, I think is still a really challenging process. How do you um, talk about that or envision um, measuring that those folks that got a message are then motivated to do something about it? Well, what you're talking about, I think, is usefully described as the difference between push communications and pull communications. Part of what we do as marketers or communicators is we try to show up in places where people 
naturally are, whether that's online or in real life, so that we can start to build mindshare with them. And as we build mindshare through the different ways we're in front of them, whether it's you know advertising or direct mail or whatever it is, we hopefully start to give them reasons why they might want to take the initiative to get engaged. The the um, that's the kind of push side of it. The pull side of it is that person who searches and finds your website. How do we make sure that once they get on the website, they not only find what they need quickly and efficiently, but that we've given them reasons to convert. We've given them reasons to give us their email addresses and take an action, whether it's a donation or a sign up or something, so that we can continue to be more directly in, in touch with them. And you know, there are lots and lots of different strategies and tactics for doing these things. In the book, there is uh, I map out um, several outcomes that an effective communications team um, should ideally generate and that an executive director should be focused on managing to generate, and then six different elements that are necessary in order to drive those outcomes. And the largest section of the book is the, the element, the first element, which is strategy. So, right. you know, so the answer to your question is I think it's very important for organizations to be clear what the model is for driving people into the funnel of their communications and how are they pushing out communications and how are they pulling people in. So using a strategic framework and being very clear and explicit about that, I think is the first step. Yeah, it's a, a hard one when I think sometimes the um, it feels like there's competition within the organization. And you also talk quite a bit about culture, organizational culture here of, you know, the program team wants to get those people signed up for the work that's happening. And, you know, the development team wants people to make a donation and um, whatever those those things may be that need to be in that strategy together. But with that limited resource seems to be so tough. And I, I think part of the challenge in this work is um, what, how do you effectively and, and affirmatively say no to some things that we just aren't going to be able to do with a more limited size staff? Or or how do you envision talking about that? You know, I don't want to get into a scarcity mindset, but you know, we, we really can't do everything all the time. So making that strategic decision has to effectively leave something off. Definitely. In, in our work at Big Duck, when we're, when we're helping organizations try to uh, right-size their communications teams and answer these questions, one of the things we find useful to do, and this is something that you can do in your own organization without the help of a consultant, is we often try to facilitate a conversation, ideally before somebody is hired, um, among the organization's senior leadership about how each department needs communications to support their work and what their expectations are. In most organizations, it's very rare that the head of, of development, the head of programs, the head of you know operations all sit in a room together and talk about what their expectations are for the communications function. Um, and we have found when we facilitate those conversations that um, it becomes pretty obvious to people pretty quickly that everybody needs a lot from communications and that the scale is just not matched to the organization's budget for the body count, the full-time employees they can have. So, so the first step is get your, get your leadership team um, aligned about what is the primary mandate of communications and what if, you know, if their time is kind of a pie chart, how, what slice of the pie should be devoted to the functions of your organization. But then the second part is to translate that into something ideally in writing that can be used both as a, as a North Star for the people who work in communications and as a reference point 
for the people who do not work in communications to help them say no. And for some organizations, that can be writing a departmental mission statement or, um, or some sort of framework. Um, we, we had a client years ago where the head of communications had written with her team a mission statement for the department. She'd gotten you know, buy-in and support from that among the, the senior leadership at the organization. And then she taped it to the wall. And when people would come in, into her office and say, hey, could you make this for me or do that for me or whatever, she'd kind of point them to the mission and she'd say, yep, that sounds like something that aligns with our mission, so we're gonna do it. Or nope, that doesn't sound like something that is our mission. I don't, you know, I'll put it, I'll put it in a queue and if we have ca capacity, I'll do it. But, um, but I can't prioritize it because I have to prioritize things that fit into this mission. And I think just having that thing to point to uh, so that it didn't feel like an individual saying no um, was a useful jumping off point. Yeah. So as you talk about that engine framework of, of moving those things forward together, you know, engines need certain pieces to run effectively and you pull one of those pieces out, they maybe don't work so well. But that doesn't mean that absolutely everything in the kitchen sink uh, needs to be there for an engine to work. And I, I think you talk about strategy in your book, and uh, this often gets confused with folks that I talk to about tactics, where somebody will say, wow, TikTok is blown up. We got to do TikTok. Um, and I'm like, well, TikTok is a tactic. Um, it's a tool that that does some things. Um, Instagram is a tool that does some things. I personally, for my business, uh, don't use Facebook a lot because it's just not the right engagement tool for the type of work that I do. That People that want to talk about the work that I'm interested in do not do so on Facebook, even though it is probably the largest communications platform outside of email and whatnot on, on the planet. It's not right for every case. So differentiating what you're talking about in strategy and what those tactics may be is, I don't, I didn't see a lot about that in, in the quick scan I was able to do of the book, but do you have that conversation much about people misinterpreting a tactic as a strategy? Yeah, absolutely. And, and um, actually Big Duck put out an ebook, which you can download for free about strategy, about communication strategy, in which we spent a lot of time defining exactly what a goal is, what is a strategy, what's an objective, what's the tactic. And as we were writing this ebook, this was maybe a year or two ago, we thought, and we kind of talked about internally, gee, is this is this like too straightforward? Are people going to feel like it's obvious and they don't need clarification? And it turns out to be our most downloaded ebook ever. Oh. And when we've talked to people who have downloaded this ebook about it, um, and, and I reference a lot of the content of what's in that ebook and in, in my new book also. But, but one of the, the takeaways from the data we've gotten on that ebook and the conversations we've had subsequently is that people are confused about the difference between a tactic, an objective, a strategy, and a goal. And we tend to think of tactics um, as strategies, and, and they are not. And I think what you're talking about is um, being clear who your audience is and what the goal is, what you're trying to achieve, um, might mean you employ different strategies or different tactics depending on, on the context. And, and this is a great um, challenge for communications people because it is very often the case that somebody walks into their office and says, TikTok is blowing up, we need to be on TikTok. But the minute they start you know, TikToking, they're effectively making a commitment to doing something tactically that's going to eat up a chunk of their bandwidth. And um, and so very quickly, communications people really get eaten alive by the day-to-day -day work 
of, you know, sending out emails and maintaining that TikTok and monitoring the Facebook group and et cetera, et cetera. So I think you really do have to be ruthless about reconnecting every tactic that you do um, to the goal that you think it's supporting and to very clear and measurable objectives that you can use to constantly assess if you're doing it. You know, if you're actually, you know, through that TikTok, um, starting to reach and engage the people in tangible ways that you, you, you know, you think is aligned with advancing your mission. Yeah, I, I think that kind of gets back to that earlier piece of saying no uh, to you know some things intentionally. That maybe there is a big audience of a type, and you've got a, a graphic in the book of sort of must speak to, would be really good to speak to, and then possible to speak to kinds of concentric circles of who who have we really got to reach, and with the amount of energy and time we have, can we expand that maybe to the it would be really good to also engage these audiences, which may require a different strategy that might be supported by different tactics than the core one. Um, but do you feel like any organization ever really like nails the core or are we always, you know, missing opportunities just within that we really should be talking to our own constituency in this much more engaged and effective way? And is that a function of communication staff size or is it just a function of being more strategic? I think it's first and foremost a function of being more strategic. And I think the challenge comes from the fact that most organizations want to reach as many people as possible. The, the, the more people you can reach and build mindshare with, and the more you can connect more people to your mission, the more successful you'll be in advancing that mission. So I think the impulse to want to reach as many people as possible is coming from a good place. But the, the downside of it is that we end up doing a poor job reaching everybody because our resources are so limited. And so the, the, uh, the illustration you're referring to in the book is really an exercise in trying to prioritize. So let's say, for, for instance, you work in an organization that's focused on a particular type of cancer. The top organizational priority is probably going to be reaching people who are affected by that type of cancer. If you are, for instance, um, well, I used to serve on the board of the National Brain Tumor Society. And um, in that organization, you know, reaching people who are affected by brain tumors is critical. If that community doesn't know the organization or engage with that organization, it's going to be virtually impossible for that organization to advance its mission. But then there are sort of concentric circles out from that primary audience. There might be people who work with brain tumor patients or care partners or scientists and researchers. There might be um, people in government who legislate on issues affecting this community, so on and so forth. And the outermost ring is the general public. Of course, if you're a cancer organization, you want the general public to be aware of your work and to turn to you as a resource if they or somebody they know are diagnosed. But it's going to be very, very expensive to make sure that everybody on the street has heard of your organization. So I think audience prioritization is really about getting ruthless about where you spend your time and your money to focus on the people who you can't afford to miss before you focus on the people who are really secondary or tertiary to advancing your mission. Yeah, I wish there was a magic bullet formula that said, nope, you've reached everybody that you need to reach now. Let's start really expanding that energy into these other areas. I think as somebody who works in fundraising, we are always talking about the the balance of donor acquisition as well as donor retention. And, um, you know, everybody will tell you that donor retention is going to be your best bang for the buck energy spend. 
but no matter what you do, there is going to be attrition in that space. You need to be doing something in acquisition of new folks to talk to. And again, if they happen to be people that are just really passionate about your cause and they go to the web and you're the first search engine result that comes up, fantastic. You know, that that's really wonderful. But I think the bigger challenge as communicators is breaking into those spaces where people maybe don't know that you're the mindshare um, group that really has that authenticity to address that issue that they care about, but they you know, that we need to kind of help them come in and that pull of where are we pulling them from? What conversations are happening out there? That can be very time consuming for maybe not as much result as that core audience we've already got the ability to measure clicks from and see what they're doing. So it takes a little bit more of long-term thinking to talk about developing those audiences over time. I think that's right. And there's a piece that you're talking about also that is about the difference between doing some proactive research and quantifying of the audiences you're trying to reach versus reactive, just looking at who's who's turning up and trying to you know, move the needle there. So an example of doing that proactively would be through research, market research, to try to really put some numbers around what your market potential is. This is something that the for-profit world does uh, habitually. Um, but the nonprofit world rarely does. When we've seen it done, it's usually done by larger organizations. But let's say, for instance, you're an organization with a budget who can afford to do this, and you are um, a political organization, an organization with, you know, um, uh, that's trying to reach, let's say, uh, progressives because you care about a certain issue. Um, it is possible to quantify how many people in this country identify politically as progressive. Um, and to compare that information to your past data and start to project how many people in the country might actually join or support your organization and set some tangible targets for yourself around that. So, um, so that you're not just kind of flying blind and saying, well, this year we want to reach 10%, you know, we want to acquire 10% new donors or 10% new members. You can actually say, well, we, we think we may have reached 10% of the potential of our audience, and our goal is to grow our audience share by X percent. Um, that definitely takes more time and more money and more bandwidth, but it does make it a little bit clearer where you are in terms of reaching those audiences. Yeah. One of the things you also talk about um, throughout this work is this um, um, presenting that that more unified voice from the organization. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the benefits of an institutional presence that is consistent and reliable and connectable for people versus um, the individuals that maybe make that up. And do they have some ability to kind of connect differently with audiences so that you might have a, a, a CEO who has a, a more active social media presence, for example, with a slightly different tone than the institutional account? Or do you more advise, let's try to line those things up closer so that it feels similar? How do you, how do you see using individuals' presence in addition to institutional? You know, oftentimes when you've got a charismatic leader, like a like a founder or an executive director who's a great spokesperson, they are what I would call a brand asset, but they are not the brand. The brand of your organization is a collection of assets that are used to communicate, and it's also about how you're perceived. And um, I think it's a dangerous thing when one person becomes synonymous yeah. with an organization, because if that person goes away, the organization has a problem. So as an organization develops its brand, 
um, one of the one of the tools in that toolkit can be a person, but I think it's got to be done very proactively and deliberately. I've seen a lot of examples of organizations where the identity of an individual kind of eclipses the identity of the organization, and uh, and that in the long term can lead to a lot of challenges. So is that a social media exclusive type of problem or is that impacting the broader communications framework? No, I, I don't think it's unique to social media, but I think it's exacerbated by social media. We've definitely seen a lot of very social media savvy executive directors who have made great strides in getting their organizations into conversations and on the radar of people um, through digital channels. But it's actually a phenomenon that existed long before social media. There have been People who were quite well known, you know, in other in other ways. Um, if you're a New Yorker, you know, Jeffrey Canada at Harlem Children's Zone was an mm. example of this, probably in the '90s, where you know, I don't I don't remember what his social media presence was. My guess was it was slim to none at the time, because this might have been even before a lot of social media. Right. But he was quite well known and quite synonymous with that organization. And it is still the case that many executive directors who don't use social media um, have that kind of footprint. It, it's often likely that their founders or their executive directors who've been um, at the organization for so long that they're, they might as well be founders. Their identity and the organization's identity feel to have merged. You know, it seems to me that as we talk about building that longer term relationship with the brand of the of the work, the nonprofit organization, its its identity, um, that feels like a longer term play than the I already know this person from my last job and they're connected to me. And that's easy to kind of keep that connection and see if they'll be a participant or a, a donor or whatever. Um, but I yeah. think we, we run into this challenge in, in the sector that we often complain about for-profit organizations that are only looking at next quarter's results. But I think communications teams too so, sort of get pushed for, you know, what have you done for me in the last 90 days? And if the the longer term measure of building trust and engagement over time is is hard to see, uh, do you feel like there's, there's often pressure to uh, abandon that that work in favor of something that might be a little bit more glitzy of a splash and look how many uh, new followers we got because of this one post? Well, it can be. I mean, in the in the very beginning of the book, I map out three outcomes that a successful communications team should be focused on generating for the organization. And the, the, the largest for many organizations is generating engagement. And that's where we get into a lot of tactics and a lot of day-to-day -day work. But another core outcome is to manage the voice of the organization. And, um, and then an even smaller one is to create sustainable momentum around communication so that those communications aren't wholly dependent on any one person, who either has institutional memory or is is you know synonymous with the organization, the, the that second objective, that second outcome of um, helping to steer and elevate the voice of the nonprofit is the objective under which branding lives and exists. Mm -hmm. And um, and what is challenging, I think, in a lot of organizations is that there are a lot of different people who are communicating in somewhat ad hoc ways. And so getting the organization, especially as it grows and is, is no longer maybe just a couple of people, getting those people to write and speak on message 
is certainly a communications function and is very challenging. It, it really relies on, first of all, having an agreed set of messages that everybody thinks are right. That's a big exercise, big lift. And then secondly, finding ways to help train people to use those messages and coach them and encourage them to use them so that they actually find they're useful and helpful, not problematic. And uh, as I did the research for this book and in the work I've done um, professionally, I've been thinking a lot about what kinds of people succeed in these jobs, in these communications jobs. And, and I've sort of landed at the place that the number one uh, and probably number two most important features of successful communicators is their ability to collaborate well and their ability to effectively project manage. And again, this is another place I think inadvertently many organizations go wrong is that the person who's hired into that one or two you know, communications jobs, um, those people are often hired because they're great writers or they're great designers or they, you know, they have some skill that is useful to bring in-house, but they may not be people who are generally liked in the organization <laughs> or great at getting things done um, or hold a lot of power or respect as they're project managing. And ultimately, it doesn't matter how great they are at writing or designing if they can't effectively shepherd a project from start to finish and collaborate with their colleagues along the way, odds are good that that's gonna really impact, uh, impact their work. So over the years, I've really shifted my philosophy about this and mm -hmm. I've encouraged increasingly organizations to stop hiring people for specific skills and start hiring people more for a personality type and, and honestly, ability to collaborate and likability so that they can do uh, as good a job as possible, really understanding what their colleagues and other departments need to achieve that engagement goal and how their colleagues work so that they can coach with and work with their colleagues to direct the organization's voice in ways that those colleagues are gonna be open to. Well, that's really interesting to hear because I, I don't know that I hear that kind of a conversation often to um, think, you know, we, we call that soft skills as you're interviewing, but to really bring that to the fore and have that conversation much more intentionally. Um, yeah, I, I'm not, I, I haven't kind of thought about that in the way that you're just presenting it, but really fascinating to see is one of the things you do spend some time on in the book is um, measuring a, a return on investment of time invested, not just, you know, we, we spent money promoting a Facebook post, we spent money on a new brochure, but um, the, the amount of staff time and what is it really costing you to have those people? So if you go into that framework in your book and look at the kind of cost of a staff person doing that, that person who's a little bit more uh, um, positively engaged with colleagues and, and collaborators in other organizations and whatnot, maybe gets to do those things just a little bit faster just because of the ease of that relationship and personality. Definitely. And I, I think this is, you know, when you think about the return on investment or ROI of certain things, I think the example I use in the book is, you know, let's say, for instance, your organization has never done a year end appeal and you decide that this is the year you've got to start, you know, start doing some year end fundraising. But you don't really have people on your team who are experts in fundraising or experts in direct mail or maybe email um, so, you know, one option is you can assign it to somebody and they can spend some time learning or they can just do something and maybe it'll work, maybe it won't. They're going to learn a lot, but they're going to spend a lot of hours to get there. So yeah. the actual hard costs seem limited because you're not paying anything on top of their salary. But actually, if you quantify 
the do, you know, the dollar amount of an hour of their time, there is a cost to it because if they're really good at something else that they could be doing, and you could be spending perhaps not a ton of money, but some money with an expert who's great at doing year-end appeals, who's a you know a fundraiser who stays on top of the best practices, you might get a lot more bang for your buck. You might be able to spend a little bit of money, but get a much greater return on that investment. So um, I, I often encourage organizations, at least for a finite period of time, to um, experiment with time tracking and really learn how long things take you in your department and try to be really clear what the hard cost is to an hour of somebody's time so that you can think of every project they work on as a financial investment, not, you know, in, in, a, in a really tangible sense. Right. I literally just ran into this with somebody I'm working with that's uh, uh, having a, a different problem, not related to communications, but um, a software installation. And they're just killing themselves over spending $100 on a tech support um, thing. And I'm like, you've so far lost much more than that in the amount of time you're not using that machine. <laughs> you've already exactly. paid out more than that. So if we think about that in terms of the comms work and all of the pieces of, you know, shouldn't we be able to use Facebook for free? Cause you know, it's free. I'm like, well, you know, if you don't mind reaching 0.5% of your audience, you know, sure you can, you can put up a post. Um, and some audiences of course will engage in those tools in different ways and everybody has to measure it, but that ability to create a budget. And that's part of what you talked about in the book too, that really talks about people as, as a, your first and best resource. Uh, but the ability to, um, really optimize exactly when are we going to use budget Budget for other purposes too, um, and what do we expect to see out of that, and where are they going? Uh, is I think uh, another element of where nonprofits maybe are more challenged than some for-profit brands in thinking of um, those external costs, uh, where maybe they're much more willing to spend money on staff than they would be to spend even a few hundred dollars on uh, other ways of reaching people to promote messages. Uh, you know, when I was writing the book and researching the book, I, I really wanted to write something that was scalable, that would be useful yeah. for small organizations as well as large organizations. And so I made a point to to research both, to, to talk to people who worked in tiny organizations, all volunteer organizations or organizations where they're just one or two staff people. But I also spoke to people who work in huge organizations and I did research with people who run communications teams within nonprofits where they might have, you know, 15 people on the communication staff or two right. of the organizations had 20 something people in communications. And one of the interesting takeaways from that is that it actually really doesn't matter what size you are. There are never enough resources <laughs> and it never makes sense to bring certain things in house. Um, and um, and even in the in the in the somewhat rare organizations that are, you know, big enough to sustain a communications department with, you know, more than five people. It's pretty unusual for, you know, for an organization to have more than five people. But even in the ones that do, they still don't do everything in-house. And um, and I, I think one way, one of the ways to think about it is what are the functions that you really can't afford to not have in-house. I mean, I would argue project management is critical. You, you know, no, no matter what you're doing, you need somebody who can coordinate and triage and you know manage a project internally. You just can't outsource that. Um, and in some cases, there are some specific competencies that require in-house expertise. Let's say you are an organization that's focused on um, you know, a very niche topic and you need people who are experts in that topic in-house because it's going to be very hard to find freelancers who can write about that topic. 
But when you get into a lot of communications work, like producing videos or you know designing something brand new, a lot of those functions really are best outsourced. It doesn't really make sense to um, pay people on staff to every day do a job when actually you know what you need them for is a specialized skill that only comes up periodically. So um, so I think I think where we go wrong in this sector here probably has more to do with trying to keep good people who have special wow. skills and keep them engaged than taking that step back and really asking the question, what's smart for this organization to do in-house? And what are the projects where we'd be really wiser to just invest in working with an outside expert for a short period of time who could help us do it even better than our in-house people could do it? Well, so much more to talk about on this, and we're just about out of time. So um, I will have a link to uh, the uh, listing for the book in the show notes so people can um, pick up a copy, read the full contents of it. But as we wrap up, is there any one piece of what you've created here that you really want to emphasize or, or throw out there that we didn't get a chance to touch on yet? Well, I, I want to emphasize, you know, in the book, uh, there is right at the beginning, a self-assessment tool, a place where you can, you can go through and you can sort of self-assess how your organization's communications are doing and maybe what you want to work on. And we've made that tool into a free downloadable PDF on bigduck.com. Um, so you, you can play around with that, whether or not you buy the book. But I think it's a really, really healthy exercise for every organization of any size, at least once a year, to kind of take a step back and look at communications and maybe other departments too, in a sort of 30,000 foot view and say, really, what are the outcomes we're achieving? And what are the elements we need to prioritize this year as we work on them? So um, as it's you know the beginning of 2020 at the time of this recording, it seems like a really good time to kind of take that step back. I would encourage your listeners to do that. And, um, and I hope that they find it useful. Great. Sarah, thanks so much for taking the time. I'm just really grateful that you put the energy into interviewing and thinking and, and structuring a book like this for everybody else to learn from. And even more grateful that you took the time to talk about it here on the podcast today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. 